Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Turning in your Bibles to Genesis 32, this Torah portion is called Vayishlach, but rather than just teaching a traditional Torah portion, I thought that what we would do is uh, spend a little time talking about what I call one of the great truths of the Torah. And by that I mean there is a, a profound teaching that goes from the beginning of Abraham all the way through the patriarchs, and it goes something like this, that the events in the lives of the fathers are the prophetic destinies of the descendants. In other words, events that happen to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will find themselves reoccurring uh, in the descendants of the patriarchs. To give a direct quote from the sages of Israel, they say it uh, this way, the lives of the patriarchs foreshadow the story of their descendants. Now, to go just a little bit further, that's, that general concept is kind of well understood. But let me tie in just a little bit more, just to show you a little deeper version of that same thing. And it has to do with the Hebrew word blessing. In other words, the promise was given, I will bless them that bless you, I will curse them that curse you. So if we examine and the linkage between Abraham, that promise, and the Messiah, there's a little play here that is very fascinating. The Hebrew word Baruch, if you change not the consonant, only one of the vowels, it's the exact same spelling as you would read in the Torah. That same word, Baruch, just pronounced just slightly different, but the same spelling also means spring of waters. And we know that the Messiah is the spring of waters that well up to eternal life. And one of the things that's very clear is that God's real intent is to the blessing, but it goes beyond that. It's to the work of the Messiah, the spring of the living waters uh, to us. So that's another little play uh, that shows that linkage between what begins with Abraham works through the Messiah all the way to us. Now, Let's go into a little bit more specifics of when we say that the events in the lives of the fathers become the prophetic destinies of the descendants. We have a specific event early in the life of Abraham when he came into the land in which that he found himself going down to Egypt temporarily and coming back up. And if you'll remember the story in which that he asked his wife, Sarai, you know, to say that, uh, that uh, she was his sister, and, and the Torah specifically goes into the details of him going down there, visiting with Pharaoh, and then, and then coming back. And that, that uh, the way Abraham leaves Pharaoh is not quite such in a good mood as when he first went down. Well, there's a destiny there. See, Israel, later on, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel, will go down into Egypt appearing to be like Abraham, hospitable, and, and, and so forth. And if you recall, there was a little bit of deceit on Joseph's part, telling the sons of Israel when they first went down there, now you tell them that you are the keeper of livestock, that you're not shepherds. And so you have a repetition of this, how Abraham went down and, and said of his wife, uh, Sarai, you know, say that you're my sister. Well, it was true. Uh, that she was, but more she was really the wife. Well, in the same case, um, the sons of Israel are counseled by Joseph to say to Pharaoh that they're the keepers of livestock. Well, yeah, they were, but they were also primarily shepherds, and that's where there was a little bit of a rub. 
uh, when they first went down to Egypt. Whereas Abraham left with some sense of of um, uh, something less than a happy departure with Pharaoh, the children of Israel will leave Egypt in the form of the Exodus being led by Moses in something less than Pharaoh's uh, liking. Uh, and so you have this pattern of the sons of Israel going down into Egypt and coming back out of Egypt, and, and the same issues that are described to us of Abraham's life, they're, they're apparent in that. Now, to really tie that in, if we look back at Genesis 15, specifically, God then tells Abraham, and it's kind of like setting precedent, if you will, how his descendants will go down into Egypt. So in Genesis 15, beginning at verse 13 through 16, let me read for you. And God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then, in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete." And clearly this was a prophecy God was giving to Abraham about what would be happening to his descendants. I would submit to you that when the sons of Israel were actually down in Egypt, as they approached the fourth generation, as they approached the period of 400 years that they were there, that it was on the mind of the sons of Israel that it might be nearing the time that we should be leaving Egypt. You know, they don't like being oppressed. They've become enslaved. They've become a, a great number, a great multitude of people. And they're remembering these prophecies of their father, Abraham. And so this then becomes a guiding influence. We know this was definitely a guiding influence on Moses. Because Moses supposed, just before the 400-year point, that God had raised him up to be a deliverer of the children of Israel, and he killed an Egyptian man. Actually, they had been there about 390 years. It was just before the 400-year point. It was about the fourth generation. Moses was a little jumping the gun, and he ended up running off to the land of Midian uh, to hide for another 40 years before he actually came back uh, to be part of the process of what we know to be the Exodus. So that obviously guided him. And in Acts chapter 7, where Stephen gives his defense of the story of Moses, he recounts this and he says, and Moses supposed, well, where did he get the supposition from? He got it from these prophecies that had been given to Father Abraham. Well, the same thing follows through. That's one good example of where you see where the events of the father Abraham didn't come to the, the descendants of Abraham. And in fact, God even specifically prophesies it to be. Well, what I want to submit to you this evening is that we're going to look at an event that happened to Jacob, one of the three fathers, that many prophets have spoken of. And it's an event, a series of events that are to happen to the last generation you know, at the end of the ages. And it has to do with the return to the land of Israel. So going to Genesis 32, we're now going to look at this event where Jacob has now been for some 20 years um, living with Laban, his uh, uncle. And during that period of time, he's fallen in love with Rachel. 
and uh, gained himself a wife. In fact, he's gained himself two wives. He's gained uh, Leah and Rachel and their two maids, handmaids, and that in the course of that 20 years, he has not only been prospered, but he has now a full family. He has a number of sons, a daughter, um, two wives and two handmaids uh, that are part of his household, plus servants and flocks uh, for it. And so he is now about to make his return. I want you to take note of the number 20, uh, because what uh, will happen around Jacob's life in many of the events is the most significant digit or number, 2. 2, 20, 200, 2,000. All of those numbers speak to issues around the life of Jacob. And... um, Uh, In simple terms, uh, from a Torah principle standpoint, we'll find that the number two will translate its way to the two tablets because the number two, 20, 200, 2000, is always talking about the spiritual theme of the balance, spiritual balance between God and man. How do you walk? We walk on two legs. And how do we walk before God? We walk uh, with a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. And what we're going to see in the life of Jacob is this dilemma of him trying to deal with the promises of God but the threats of man and uh, navigate and maintain some kind of balance between that. God will give him two wives, and he will have to navigate the balance between two wives and two handmaids. And uh, he will characterize himself as that God has made him into two camps uh, as we look into the story. Now, he is, uh, he's just left Laban. He's getting ready to come back into the land. And it says that he is going to be met by some angels. If you recall, when he first left the land, he also saw some angels. He slept there at Bethel. And he saw Jacob's ladder. And he saw the angels of God ascending and descending on the ladder. And so he said, oh my goodness, this is a, this is a place here. This is a very interesting place. Uh, because this must be the house of God. This is the, the gateway. This is the place between heaven and earth. And uh, so we spoke of that in a previous lesson. Now he's getting ready to come back to the land, and again, angels meet him. And there in Genesis 32, it reads as follows, beginning at verse 1. Now as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. And Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Mahanaim. This is God's camp. Mahanaim means two camps. It's a camp where God is at, and it's my camp. It's where I'm at. We have two camps. Thus we begin this theme of two, you know, with Jacob. And because what's getting ready to happen now is he starts to describe himself in this context. I met the angels there once, now I've met the angels there again, whereas that was the house of God, this is the camp of God. You know, and so he says, well, this is the camp of God, and here's my camp, and we're joined together uh, with him. And thus begins this um, concept of the two. Begin Now reading at verse um, 3, Then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau. Thus says your servant Jacob. I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now, and I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my lord that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, 
We came to your brother Esau, and furthermore, he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. So why in the world did Jacob send messengers off to his brother Esau? Twenty years before, when he had left, the word that he had been given from Esau was, because of the events of him of Esau selling his birthright, because of the events of Jacob receiving the blessing from Isaac to the chagrin of Esau, Esau had vowed that he was going to slay his brother Jacob. So the reason he had left with the blessing of his parents was to avoid <laughs> uh, the hassle, if you will, uh, with Esau. Now he's getting ready to return to the land and he's letting Esau know, hey, I'm coming back. And the reason he's sending the messengers is so that Esau's not going to perceive that he came to attack him or that there's anything negative. He's trying to find a way uh, to forewarn Esau so that he can come to terms with Esau. Because God has told Jacob to go back to the land. What else has God told him? God's also told him, oh, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. I'm going to make your descendants to be as the stars of the heavens. Same promises he gave to Abraham. Now, how can God do all of this if Esau has has this vow to kill him and to destroy the things of Jacob? So you can see the conflict. We've got God's promise, but we've also got the threat of man, Esau, his brother, in this particular case. So he sends the messengers out, and they come back with a bad report. And uh, there's no way that you could possibly perceive that Jacob showing up with 400 men, that this was the welcoming committee. Uh, you know, you don't need that many men for a welcoming committee. In fact, Abraham, when he went to do battle with the uh, five kings that took Sodom and Gomorrah and stole Lot, kidnapped him, Abraham only went out with 300 men. Here's Esau showing up with 400 men. You know, he's like, you know, ready to take on five kings, you know, of the valley if necessary. That was a sizable army in those days. So what we have is a case of... Uh, as he's getting ready to come back to the land, he's got this bad report. There will come a time when Israel, the same descendants that came up out of Egypt, will hear a bad report from the spies in the land and will be fearful and not obey the Lord and not follow the example of Jacob of continuing on into the land. But instead, in, uh, instead of not learning the lesson, they will not believe the lesson of Jacob, their father, before, and therefore it will get them into trouble. So I would want to draw principle here at this point. Not only do we have a destiny, uh, being the, the sons of Abraham, to the events of the lives of the patriarchs, and that that is a destiny for us. If we follow what the fathers did, we will find ourselves in safety, but if we depart from what the fathers did, we will find ourselves in trouble. And so not only is it just uh, interesting uh, for us to take note of what happened to the patriarchs. It's our very life. It is our destiny, uh, and we have to follow it. We have to find a way to complete it, uh, or else we're going to have difficulty. And in this case, Jacob received a bad report, but it doesn't stop him from returning to the land. It did stop Israel, and it caused them to get in trouble uh, with the Lord later on. So Jacob defines... Um, this present dilemma that he is in with uh, Esau by uh, in verse 7. Let me read for you. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. 
And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. Kind of an ingenious plan. The idea being is that Esau and his 400 men, he's not going to split them up. He's going to lead them. And so he has overwhelming power. Uh, with it, but he can't be in every place at the same time. So I will divide my forces so that if he attacks one, the other one will be able to escape. The idea is it's not a perfect solution, but at least you survive. At least somebody has a chance to survive. And so he calls it two camps, Mahanaim. He calls himself just like the camps that he's met with, with the angels. He says, well, I will be like that too. I will have two camps about me, and it will be for the purposes of defense. And thus we see uh, a pattern begin to emerge here that will follow through on the two, the 20, and, and uh, of this great numerical theme that comes through with um, Jacob. Let me just hint on, just for a moment, the two tablets that we're going to find out later on. God could have made one tablet. Why two tablets? Well, it comes after the same theme of what we see here. In other words, I'm trying to show to you, God follows this pattern too. Not only has he set the pattern for the patriarchs, he himself is the, the designer of it. He's the one who was trying to illustrate it. Um, if you look at the two tablets, and Moses is very specific with us about the fact that there were two tablets, we find that the first set of five commandments of the Ten Commandments are all have to do with commandments with God. The second five of the Ten Commandments have to do with commandments with men. One tablet has to do with our relationship with God. One has to do with our relationship with other men. And so you have this parity, you have this balance uh, being formed. And we know that the Scripture says that you cannot have a relationship with God, whereas you say, I love God, but I hate a man. It's not possible to love God and do that, or vice versa, any combination thereof. And it it comes from this. In other words, Jacob is not going to have peace with God if he doesn't get this thing with Esau resolved, and there's no way he's going to get this thing with Esau resolved unless he believes God and is in God's will. Because it had to do with God's destiny and purpose for Jacob that caused the conflict to begin with with Esau. Um, so uh, keeping all of that in mind while we'll go through and see the implications that uh, has to do with us. The next thing that we see Jacob do in this story is to offer a prayer. A very interesting prayer. It begins at verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who didst say to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and all the faithfulness which thou hast shown to thy servant. For with my staff only I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me, the mothers with the children. For thou did say, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Examine the prayer just a little bit more. First of all, he repeats back what God has already told him. In other words, he's not taking issue with what God said. He said, remember, God, you told me you wanted me to go to the land. You told me to return. And you also said to me when I would return that you would prosper me. 
Well, let's get the facts out. I don't deserve to be prospered by you. You know, it's only by your loving kindness, your mercy, your grace, you know, that I am the benefactor of these promises and of these good things. It's not because of my merits. I have not earned them. So it's, it's, you, it's your will and your purposes, God. It's not because of my purposes they were doing it. And basically what he's doing is really trying to set the Lord up and saying, look, would you please deliver me from my enemy? I mean, you promised you would help me. And I have this enemy. And now let me also get honest with you, Lord. I'm afraid of him. I'm afraid he's going to hurt me. I'm also afraid he's going to hurt my descendants, my wives and children. And if you'll remember, Lord... (laughs) Not only did you give a promise to me that you would prosper me, but you also gave a promise that you would cause my descendants also to prosper and uh, be multiplied as well. So the way it works, God, is it's your idea. And so if I get hurt you know, by my brother Esau, well, then how will you fulfill your promise? And if my descendants get hurt, how will you fulfill that promise? You know, so, Lord, I'm asking on the basis of your promise. Well, this is what I call the classic prayer of faith. Believing the promises of God. Put put the iotas on God based on his promises and let him solve it. Because I can't solve this. Jacob's is saying, I can't solve this. In fact, one of the great debates uh, amongst the sages here is they want to know why didn't Jacob take his servants and why didn't he form, quote, a battle plan? In other words, why does he come up with a defensive plan, but he doesn't come up with an offensive plan. Why, what, you know, he has the element of surprise. Why didn't he come up with a, you know, all ambushing? You know, as he's coming, I'll, I'll nail it. Uh, is it because he didn't have sufficient force? There's no evidence that he ever attempted to do that. And the reason is because, the, I think, is because he has a totally different perspective on the problem. He realizes this is really a problem with him and God, as well as with him and his brother. And he's trying to find a resolution between God and him and with his brother and him. Thus the theme, thus the whole purpose and story uh, of, of this story about Jacob. Now, having uh, laid that prayer out, and basically he's faced his problem and he's appealed to God for help. The next uh, thing that he does is he decides to present a series of gifts to Esau. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter 32... Through verse uh, 21, let's read what he does there. So he spent the night there. Then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. I want you to note the numbers here. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on before me, put a space between droves. And he commanded the one in front, saying, when my brother Esau meets you and asks you, saying, to whom do you belong and where are you going? And to whom do these animals in front of you belong? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. It is a present sent to my Lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. Then he commanded also the second and the third and all those who followed the drove, saying, After this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Behold, your servant Jacob also is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on before him while he himself spent that night in the camp. 
It's not such a bad plan when you really go to think about it. You, you, there's going to be a moment when you're going to have to face Esau. And so what he decides to do is kind of put his best foot forward. Now, it, the, the logic here is, well, if Esau is, uh, is all you know, hot and passionate to come back to destroy Jacob, well, then we'll send him the gift and we'll have him announce to him, yeah, uh, Jacob's just uh, you know, right back here. He's just uh, right over the next hill. Uh, he'll be coming here very shortly. Of which, if the guy is passionate and he's hot to, to go after uh, Jacob, well, he'll issue the charge of his 400 men. He'll deploy them militarily to immediately get ready to attack. And it will become kind of obvious as to what Esau's attempt is or what his plan is. But if he continues to march his troops and they're not in an attack formation, well, then it indicates that things may be safe uh, you know, for him. With 400 men, if you were getting ready to attack, you would deploy your forces. You'd form a line. Uh, you'd have to do some of the, the logistics of bringing your forces forward and dropping your other equipment, get your weapons out. You know, it, it would be pretty obvious if you were spying off at a distance, well, what's Esau's response here? Uh, for it. So, and so he sets him up with a series of stages. Maybe he doesn't do it the first time, but maybe he'll do it the second or the third or the fourth or whatever. Uh, you know, and then the hope was, uh, while Esau is hesitating about how to get ready to attack, I'll just keep being nice to him and give him these gifts. Now, I want us to examine for a minute the gifts that he gives to him. 200 female goats, 20 male goats. That's more male goats than he needs for the 200 female goats. If he wants to have a feast right there, he's got the goats that he needs to have a feast right now and have a herd of goats. 200 ewes of sheep, 20 rams. Same thing there. 30 milking camels and colts. 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. Now, in the terms of the, of the ancient peoples, let me tell you what the youthfulness, usefulness of these gifts were. In the case of goats... There's goat's milk, and there's meat, and there's goat's hair for tent material. And, and amongst the Bedouin people, this is like the primary thing. This is a, like a, a major gift, you know, to have this many goats. Um, and there's a lot of Bedouin. That's all they have There's herds of goats, and they live off them. They got plenty of food and meat and, and material to make tents with and so forth. But he goes further. He gives them also sheep. Well, with that comes uh, meat, you know, lambs, you know, fresh lamb, as well as wool, you know, to make fine garments. So not only do you have the material to make tents, you have the garment, you know, the material to make garments, you know, as well now from it. In the case of camels, the ability to travel long distances, because camels was, you know, the schooner of the desert. And so this is like limos, you know, these are limousines, you know, to the ancient people. I can travel long distances. He's giving me a fine gift here. Eliezer, making a long journey just to get Rebecca, took only 10 camels. You know, he's got, uh, he's got 30 camels here. This is a very excellent gift of, of camels. Cows, with that comes meat, as well as hides. The leather can be tan, and, and leather was a, a major working tool. Uh, you know, to the ancient people. So these are excellent gifts, very useful uh, to anyone living in that region. And finally, donkeys for carrying of burdens and supplies. You'd need a number of donkeys to be able to carry the supplies on a caravan and on a long trip. So he's basically met all of his needs. He's given him excellent gifts, you know, in every case. 
um, you know, for these. So this is this is no minor gift that he has put forward. And he concludes it by saying, I will appease him with the present that goes before me. Then afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. In other words, I don't know that he's really trying to offer this as a full payment for having taken the blessing uh, or having taken the birthright. But there's nothing uh, uh, small about these gifts that Jacob's about to give. This is an excellent gift uh, to be giving to, uh, to anyone at that point. Having dispatched the, uh, the gifts to go forward, he's put his best foot forward. He's put his best negotiation forward. He sent messengers. He's alerted him, and now he's got gifts ready to go. He's turned the thing over to God. He's prayed, and he's asked God. And it, it's at this moment that he's got one more night before the next day before things are going to be happening. And this is what we would classically say amongst ourselves is he didn't have such a great night. You know, a lot of times when you see somebody in the early in the morning and they look a little haggard, you say, well, did you sleep okay? Well, no, I really didn't have that great a night, you know. Well, Jacob is going to have one of those not-so-great nights. He's going to be very fatigued. He's not going to get a lot of rest. He's very concerned. He's doing the best he can, but he's not going to get a lot of sleep in this particular night. In fact, it says for us, uh, beginning there in verse 22 through 32, let me read, now he, Jacob, arose that same night. <laughs> it didn't say he went to sleep. It says, no, he was up and about. He arose that same night, took his two wives, his two maids and the eleven and his eleven children, and crossed the ford at Yabak. And he took them and sent them across the stream, and he sent across whatever he had. First thing that I want you to take note of is the name of the ford of the place that he crossed, Yabak. You know what it means? Empty. Nothing. Nothing there. It's all emptied. And so that's what he did. He emptied himself. He has nothing less. He sent all the rest of his flocks over. He sent his wives. He sent his children. There's nothing left. He's emptied himself. You know, at this place. And so it was called the Ford at Yabak, where he has emptied himself. This will become, this location will become the northern border of the modern state of Israel, where Reuben and Gad will use this as the border marking between the sons of Ammon and Israel. This is the very moment that he's entering the land. And he's entered the land by, if you will, emptying himself, you know, to come forward uh, into the land. The, uh, it's also about, we believe this to be the place which is about four miles east of Sukkot. So it's in the next four miles from this crossing that he will deal with Esau because we know ultimately he comes to Sukkot and that's where he camps. That's the first place he lives in the land. So we're talking about a place that's not too far, but it's within about a four mile distance of where it's at. And by the way, uh, four miles, four is a very significant number to us because the number four, just as two is always about Jacob balance, spiritual balance, the number four will always end up being about things about the Messiah. So that's the distance. It has something, it's a clue. It's about something having to do with the Messiah is getting ready to take place. Well, he sends them all across. He's emptied himself. He has nothing left. He's at a place called an empty place. There's nothing there. There's nothing there except that a man shows up. A man who then begins to wrestle with him. Let me read for you, continuing on. Verse 24, Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
And when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore to this day the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. Now we've been making the, the point from the very beginning, what happens in the lives of the patriarchs or the fathers will become the destiny of the descendants. And here is a place in which that Moses records that there's a certain eating habit that the sons of Israel exhibit based on this story, based on this event that happened in the life. They don't eat, if you will, the rump roast. <laughs> they don't eat that hindquarter right up by the hip. They'll share that with others, even though it's kosher, but they don't in remembrance of what happened to their father, Jacob, the fact that his hip was dislocated. So we need to go back and uh, do a little further examination of exactly what's going on here. So I'm going to pose a couple of questions to you, which will be the basis of how we'll ourselves wrestle with this passage. A man wrestles with him until daybreak or the dawning of the day. He's, had, he's been up late. He's been getting things done. So we're probably talking about he's been wrestling with him for a couple hours because he's up in the middle of the night and after he dispatched everybody over, this man came and wrestled with him. We might ask the question, who was the man? Who in the world is this man that's come wrestling with him? Why wrestle? And the word <laughs> wrestle here means really to strive. Why strive with this man? You might ask the question, who started it? Was it Jacob started wrestling with the man, or did the other man start wrestling with him? And, you know, what, what's the basis of, I'm, why would you be near the water, there's nothing left, and you get into a wrestling match? I mean, I've heard of, of fisticuffs or a fight or yelling at each other, but what's this wrestling business? You know, rolling around, uh, you know, business. And why did the man wrestle Jacob? Why did Jacob wrestle the man? You know, which poses, we don't have it readily apparent to us in the first part of the story as to, it just says he wrestled with the man. But a little bit later on, as the, some pieces come to the story, the dialogue comes to, it begins to answer some of the questions for us. For example, question number one, who was the man? Well, we know it was God. God was in some form, whether you call it the angel of God or whether you could say it's one of these moments when the Messiah, I personally believe it was one of these moments when the Messiah appeared. And, you know, there are other moments in Scripture where we believe the Messiah appeared as well. And the Messiah is here struggling with Jacob. I think also that Jacob started this. I think Jacob was stressed. I think he was the one that was all upset. I think he's the one that grabbed him and got into a wrestling match and tried to pull him down, hang on to him, because it says that the man wanted to leave. In fact, he's trying to get away. He's saying to him, let me go. The, the, the day is dawning. I need to get out of here. You know, and Jacob won't let him go. 
keeps wrestling him to the ground, keeps grabbing him at the legs or uh, getting on top of him or whatever it is, that whatever wrestling was going on. You know, Jacob continues to pursue him uh, for that purpose. And it says that um, with regard to question number three, you know, why, why, did, uh, why did the man end up wrestling with Jacob? It was to give him a blessing. What kind of blessing? Well, one, to give him some confidence. Because he says to him, he compliments him when he gives the blessing to him, and he said, you have prevailed with man and with God. In other words, puts it on balance. And the key word there is, you have prevailed. Interestingly enough, we're going to see the sequence of which son goes first before Esau. You know who it is? Naphtali, whose name means prevailed. It will be the son of the first handmaid who will go first before and his name means prevailed, you know, who will go forth. And I think it has to do with giving him confidence by, if, if you can see that you've done well with me, Jacob, then have some confidence that you'll do well with other men. You know, as you, that if you prevailed with me, you'll prevail with them. You're wrestling with him, you've wrestled with me, you've prevailed, you'll, you'll prevail. In effect, God's trying to prove him and show him uh, that he'll be okay by it. And Jacob obviously is wrestling because he's trying to gain the blessing. He's not sure exactly what the blessing is, but we, he wants a blessing. Um, and if you really will stop and examine sometimes why um, children will struggle with their parents, uh, where they become agitated and, and want a lot of attention and they become a hassle, if you will, to the parents, it's always obvious as to why they're doing it. They want attention. They want the blessing. That's what they're pursuing. They want the blessing. They want something good, you know, that's supposed to come forth. And the average kid who gets, who's small and gets agitated and becomes a problem, nine times out of ten, they're wanting attention. They're a little bit, you know, they'll, they'll cause trouble, you know, to get that attention. And the wiser parent will interpret that correctly and meet that need. And I think in this case, the Lord knew that, that Jacob needs this blessing. Jacob needs this confidence, and so he's going to engage him uh, so, that, so that he'll receive it. And the other that uh, I always tie into this is the issue of the dawning of the day. Why is it so significant that he wants to leave before the dawning of the day? The fact of the matter is, is that when the descendants of Jacob will be ultimately returning to the land of Israel, it'll be at the dawning of the day, the day that the rabbi was talking about when we can't tell the difference between Jew and Gentile. It'll be the dawning of that day, you know, when we ultimately make our return uh, to the land. Now, there's a couple of other things I should also point out to you that we learn from the story of uh, Jacob. The first is that he makes reference to, I have seen the face of God, and he refers to the place as Peniel. And Peniel means the face of God. Penuel means the same thing. Peniel is the, is the more personal term that Jacob made in his experience. Penuel is the actual name of the place. And it may be, and this is what some scholars have said, there may have been some distinguishing feature in this region. There may have been a rock you know, that sometimes will look like a, a face or something. And maybe it already had the name, the face of God, that there was some distinguishing characteristics in the land or that they took note of. And so he already knew that there was a marker or something about it. Well, well, but Jacob has his own experience dealing with the face of God. 
And so he refers to it as Peniel, uh, and then it says that he crossed over there at Penuel. Uh, it's the same thing. It's, it's referring to the same thing. So the first principle that we have to do with about how Jacob deals with, with his struggles and his problems is he has to face them. And the fact of the matter is when we have problems and struggles, one of the first things we have to do is we have to face them. And like he did with going before God, he faced off with what is the promise of God and what is it that I'm afraid of? And that's where we have in our spiritual world versus our physical world, that's what we'll always be struggling with. What is it that God wants to do with me? What is his promise? And what is it that I'm seeing in the physical world that makes me afraid? Interesting, and I've taught this before, you can only be afraid of one thing at a time. If you make the Lord to be your fear, then you will not fear men. But in this case, Jacob has got a promise from God, but he fears Esau. So he's got to face off on. He's got to be factual. He's got to be truthful. And then so you ask the question, well, why did God uh, dislocate his thigh? What has that got to do with this? Because that's the two features of this. He names a place, Peniel, which other descendants and other people of other nations will refer to that as Penuel. In the Bible, it will refer to the same place and other times. They remember this place where Jacob was at, and yet at the same time that all of the descendants, the sons of Israel, don't eat of the sinew of the thigh coming up into the rump area of the hip in remembrance of God dislocating the thigh of Jacob. Obviously, it's significant. If Peniel was significant, then what's the business of, of this dislocation of the thigh? Well, it's kind of a simple thing. It, why did he dislocate the thigh? So that he would have to let him go so he couldn't pursue him. Why is it that he doesn't want him to pursue? Well, going back to the basic problems, you have to face your problems. And the second thing you have to do is you can't run away from your problems. Nor can you run after them. You know, you can make two mistakes about running with regard to a problem. You can either avoid it, run away, or you can be too aggressive toward the problem, running after it, and foul it all up. And so what is he making Jacob do? He's making him be still. He's saying, face the problem, be still, and let me solve it. I'm on your side. You Don't mess with it. Don't run away. Stay here. And so you have probably your basic advice, spiritual advice, that you can give to any of the believers when they come in and present a problem to you. Basic spiritual counsel. Step one, let's face the problem. What are the facts? You know, what are you facing? What are you up against? And well, what has God told you about all that? You know, what has God got to say about that? What, what, what are you afraid of? What is it that's bugging you? Face it. Let's be honest with it. Number two, uh, dislocating the thigh. You can't run from this. And don't be aggressive and go off and try to solve the problem yourself. Don't go chase after it. You know, be like Jacob. Be still and let the Lord, you know, work it for you. You can still limp along, you know, if you will. You can still move, but don't go chasing after it. Slow it down. So you have your basic uh, uh, counsel on how to deal with problems. Um, and that's the basic counsel on how we solve problems that we may be struggling with the Lord. As we face it, we're honest, and we're be still and let the Lord do it. Okay, so 
we got all these wonderful lessons about Jacob dealing with the problem. He's got the promises of God. He's got Esau who wants to kill him. And so now comes the grand moment after he's dispatched his presence and after he's done all the best he can. He's trusted the Lord. He's learned his spiritual lessons. God has built up his confidence. He says, you have prevailed. You will prevail. Now let's go forward. So what's he do? In uh, Genesis 33, beginning at verse 1, he then gives a sequence of specifically how the meeting comes about. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. And he put the maids and their, two, and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Did you see the sequence there? The maids with their children first, Leah and her children next, Rachel and Joseph last. Let me give you the names of the sons again in sequence. Bilhah, the maid, her two children were Dan and Naphtali. As I mentioned to you before, Naphtali means prevailed. I have prevailed. And Dan is God is my judge. Judge. Vindicated. I've been judged. I've been vindicated. And I have prevailed is the name of the two sons. Gad and Asher of Zilpah is fortunate and happy. So, you know, there's a whole message of, you know, the whole message of going forward. Those are the sons that go forward first. Then Leah's uh, children, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Dinah, the daughter. And then Rachel and Joseph. I want you to take note of it doesn't name any of the other children except Joseph. It doesn't even name the maids. It names the wives, but the last son is named specifically. Joseph is specifically named. All right. And then the story goes on to say that his family is then introduced to him. Let me read from Genesis 33, beginning at verse 3, to see the rest of the story. But he, Jacob himself, passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Now, you can imagine all the gifts and so forth. Now, here comes you know, uh, here comes Esau, and all the servants have always referred to Esau as Lord, have always referred to Jacob as your servant, Esau. <laughs> Jacob is servant, Esau your Lord, and so here comes now the first thing that Jacob does, and he bows seven times before Esau. I mean, how are you going to strike this guy down who's treating you with such kindness and respect? I mean, you know, he's trying to appease him to the greatest extent possible. And he came near to his brother. Verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. I'm sure it was weeping of relief on Jacob's part. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children, and he said, Who are these with you? So he said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. Note that they present themselves in exactly the sequence that Jacob sent them out. Now, I have an interesting question for you. You remember how Jacob defined himself as two companies? So why did he present them in three sets? What are the two companies? When Jacob says, I have two camps, I have, I have, you, Lord, you have made me to two companies, two camps. When he goes to divide them and present them up to Esau, you know, remember his, his plan was, I'll send them out as two companies. So if he attacks one, the other one will escape. But when he goes to present them here, he's presented them in three sections instead of two camps. So what, what's that all about? I thought the plan was two camps. Send out one group, we'll keep one group back. 
That's what the plan was. That's what that's how he defined himself as two camps before the Lord. But now when he meets Esau, it's in the form of three, which presents kind of an interesting... What in the world was he talking about before? Well, I think part of the conclusion is that um, he was presenting himself from the standpoint of the way his life and his family had been defined for him by his wives. The fact of the matter is the two camps he's referring to is the camp of Rachel and the camp of Leah. The two camps are he has two wives. And if you remember in the previous portions over the naming of the sons, where there was always this controversy between Leah and Rachel, and they were always vying for Jacob's affections. And Jacob's true affections uh, emotionally were with Rachel, but he realized the plan of God was with Leah. Uh, and he was always weighing out, you know, how do I appease and keep them happy, you know, in the midst of that. For it. So that's how he defined himself as two camps. And the future definition, I want you to keep that in mind, Jacob's definition of two camps are that of Leah and that of Rachel. It wasn't the two camps that faced themselves to Esau. When it came to dealing with Esau, it was in the form of three elements, not just two camps. I want you to keep that in mind, uh, because the two camp things has to do with our destiny. It is a definition that carries forward for us, not necessarily this that happened in Esau's day. Finally, after having met there, we have the final part of this um, meeting between them in which that Esau offers his services to lead them forward. Uh, Jacob refuses that and says, look, if you're out there leading, why my flocks and my my uh, children won't be able to keep up and, and you don't know at the rate they need to go. So no, no, thank you. And he said, well, I'll leave some men with you. No, no, thank you. Uh, uh, you know, the Lord is my surety. I don't need your men to defend. Uh, you know, why don't you go ahead and go on to home and, and I'm going to press on. I'll see you later. And so Esau makes his departure at this point, and Jacob makes his departure, and he makes his way to a, the place called Sukkot. So that's the basic story that we have of Jacob's return to the land of Israel. He is in the form of two camps that he empties himself. He crosses over. He sets in these little divisions of his children going forward before him. Um, and then he has a meeting, and he ends up in Sukkot. And as I said from the very point of this discussion, that the events of the lives of the fathers are, are the prophetic destinies of the descendants. And I believe that like unto Abraham that led into the exodus, that there is another exodus, a greater exodus to be taking place at the end of the age. And the pattern or the picture of that exodus is by the events of Jacob's return to uh, the land for us. So, I want to summarize real quickly what we've just basically heard about uh, Jacob's return and draw some immediate parallels to the last generation and our destiny about the ultimate return to the land of Israel. First and foremost, we know that, that uh, he sent out a, a messenger and he got back a bad report. We too, as the people of the last generation, before we make our return, we have messengers who've come back with bad reports. We have a whole series of prophets in the scriptures who've come and said, that the last generation is going to face a very, very difficult time. Before we make our way back to the land, we're going to have to deal with an antichrist. We're going to have to deal with oppression, threat of life like Jacob did. We're, you know, our, we're not going to be so sure that God, you know, is God really with us? You know, we have a promise from God that says we'll be in the kingdom with him. Do we really believe that promise? Or are we going to uh, uh, believe our fears? Are we going to let our fears of the, the message of the bad report uh, affect us as well. And so we find ourselves um, 
uh, having to deal with this bad report. There are some of our brethren who don't like that bad report. Oh, I don't want to believe that report. Uh, you know, let's let's uh, let's let's come up with another plan. And instead of seeing the great plan of the greater Exodus at the end of the age, where well, they got a different kind of plan. You know, let's let's get let's have the resurrection and the rapture first. Uh, God, why don't you just zap us over into the land right off the bat, and we'll we'll go there. And some don't even want to go to the land. Why don't you just go ahead and zap us to heaven? Forget the land. You know, let's just go to heaven. Uh, we'll go into your presence, but we, we won't be down here on the land. I mean, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's disproportionate with what the destiny is. And if you remember the children of Israel, when they got ready to go into the land, and they, and they because of the bad report, they were afraid for them and for their children, you know, we're going to face this dilemma. The last generation is going to face this dilemma, this bad report thing. And a lot of people are going, not going to believe uh, the promise of God, they're going to want to come up with another promise. They're going to come up with another plan for God instead of sticking with the basic plan, and they're going to find themselves in a lot of difficulty and a lot of trouble uh, with regard to it. So that's number one that we could draw from that. Number two, Israel was divided into two companies. Well, guess what? We've already seen this happen to Israel in its history. In fact, what we have is, is that um, Leah whom the tribe that was a descendant of Leah, whom will become the leader of the children of Israel, is Judah. And from Rachel, who will become a leader of the children of Israel, is by Joseph and his son Ephraim. And Ephraim and Judah became the two dominant tribes in the history of the sons of Israel in the land. And there was a rebellion, a revolt, if you will, between Ephraim and Judah. And thus we formed in Israel's history the house of Israel, Ephraim and those that he led, and the house of Judah, and Judah and those led, and that we call them the northern southern kingdom. Why did God ever permit such a thing to happen? Same plan that Jacob used when he had to go face his enemies. God knew that Israel ultimately would be scattered out of the land into the hands of the enemies, and so what did he do? He took the same plan that Jacob did. The idea being, I will send Ephraim and Israel out into the hands of the enemies first, and then Judah will come. Well, as a matter of fact, we historically, around 700 B.C., Israel did go into Assyrian captivity and was scattered you know, throughout the hands. Then in 70 A.D., Judah was then scattered and was out there and so forth. They went through a little Babylonian captivity and got returned, still disobeyed, and then they got scattered to all the nations. Um, at 70 A.D. So what did God do? He took the same plan that Jacob did. Well, I'll send them out into their hands of their enemies, but one, there'll be two companies, two camps, if you will, two houses, if you will. So if the enemy attacks one, the other one will escape and vice versa. In other words, we'll, it'll be a way to preserve them while they're in the hands of their enemies, while they're subject to their enemies. And so we see the whole, what we read in the scripture, the whole definition between Israel and Judah between the house of Israel and the house of Judah is born out of this situation that came from Jacob. Truly, you know, it, it is, that's as, as great as the, as the original exodus out of Egypt with, with Abraham. We see the, the, um, the two houses uh, formed as a result of Jacob's plan. The third point I would want to draw your attention to is that Jacob, this night before, this last night, this last period before coming over, this is a very unsettling night. You could say that Jacob was in great distress. You could say that Jacob has great trouble. 
by the way, the prophets refer to this last period of time just before we cross over the dawning of the day, just before we go into the land as a time of great distress as the world has never seen before. In fact, in the King James, it refers to as Jacob's trouble. Jacob's trouble is a reference to the great tribulation. So the night, when we examine the night of how Jacob is emptying himself, that's basically a picture of what we will have to be doing in the great tribulation. You know, we will be dissipating all that we have gained or acquired, you know, in an effort just to kind of make it. And we're going to be wrestling with God, you know, in that time frame. And we're going to have to face off, if you will, and we're going to hope that we can prevail, you know, throughout this period of time. And it's all called Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation. So there's a huge parallel uh, for us with regard to that. And I believe that in the same way, the same lesson that Jacob presents to us um, about how we have to face it off, you know, and remember the promises of God, explain to God what we're afraid of, explain to God that we're afraid for our families, and trust God to do it. That is how you get through Jacob's trouble. That's how you get through this dark night, this period of time we call um, the Great Tribulation. And that God says, if we'll be still, you know, we're careful, we're not running off, if you will, to avoid the problem completely. We're not running after to try to act on the problem because it, it's beyond our control. We've got to let God resolve this thing, let him bring it to a conclusion. We're going to limp along, if you will, uh, through this period of time. So as we're slowly dragging our way through the Great Tribulation and so forth, why we can say that we're just Jacob limping along. This is Jacob's trouble. <laughs> you know, this is what we're supposed to be facing at that point. So there's some parallels for us to draw off that. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, specifically says, Alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. It is the time of Jacob's distress. It's the time of Jacob's trouble. But he will be saved from it. And it's, this is a direct verse about the Great Tribulation, the end of the age for the descendants of Jacob. And it's saying that we are going to have a lot of trouble like our father Jacob had, but we're going to be saved from it like Jacob was, that as he prevailed, we will prevail uh, at the same time. As God um, was his vindication, God will be our vindication. See the pattern? See how so clear it is? We've got to keep that in mind. One of the reasons why it's, it's um, necessary for us to know the stories of the patriarchs because that's the basis of our confidence um, toward God in these events. If you take just the number... Again, the number 2, 20, 200, 2,000. You've already seen the 2, the 20s, and the 200s, but where's the 2,000? Well, it's been 2,000 years since Israel began wrestling with a certain man, a certain man named Yeshua and his argument that he is the Messiah. And this issue is not going to be resolved. This issue of, of Jacob's trouble is not going to be resolved until Israel comes to terms with and asks for the blessing of Yeshua, and Yeshua gives the blessing. And, of course, the blessing that we're talking about is the salvation. It's the salvation of the Messiah. And it's when the salvation of Israel comes about is the end of the wrestling period, and the full blessing comes into And we know that comes at the dawning of the day, you know, when the wrestling match is over with. The last item that I want you to take note of is the um, 
well, not the complete last item, but the fourth item I want you to take note of, is the sequence of uh, Jacob's return. As I mentioned to you before, he put the maids and the children, then Leah and the children, then Rachel, and finally Joseph. And Jacob then came bowing and embraced Esau, came, came to terms with what's the issue. If we look back at this generation, there's a couple of physical things that is readily apparent to all of us. One, Israel, modern, the nation of Israel, became a nation in 1948. In 1967, Jerusalem was recaptured and declared to be the capital. And since in just recent days, we've seen a seven-year peace accord. Uh, and at the same time this has all been going on, we have been watching, we've been witnesses and participants, although we have not gone back to the land of Israel ourselves, we have been participants in a spiritual return in preparation for the land we call the Messianic Movement. There is a spiritual element of Israel returning. There's a physical element of Israel returning. Remember, we're always in this balance business with Jacob. Spiritual issues of God's promises, physical issues of what we're having to deal with. One has to do with the promises of God, things that come from the Scripture, from His Word. The other have to do with dealing with enemies. And so if you take the Messianic movement, the spiritual element of the return of Israel, the modern state of Israel is the physical element or dealing with its enemies, if you will. And these are coming to a conclusion. They're, they're, they're coming in at the same time. Um, we know that there's specific promises about the return to the land, but I want to show you some of the specific promises that are given concerning the modern messianic movement. That is, the return, the spiritual return of Jews and Israel to the Lord. Look with me to the prophet Isaiah chapter 10 to begin with. In Isaiah chapter 10, beginning in verse 20, for the next uh, couple of verses, it's going to describe about a remnant of Israel returning to the Lord. Verse 20, Now it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined, overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts, will execute in the midst of the whole land. These last two verses are the same language that is referred to as the Great Tribulation this time of Jacob's trouble, a destruction that is decreed, one carried out by the hand of God. That is Jacob's trouble. That's when God's judgment falls upon the whole world. And it says here, Isaiah is saying, that at the time that that gets ready to happen, though Israel is as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be returning. Now, the fact of the matter is, it's always been a remnant. It's because the remnant is always illustrating the spiritual part of Israel. There's always been a remnant in Israel. And Isaiah said in his day the remnant was small. Had there not been a remnant, uh, Israel would have been in Sodom and Gomorrah. God would have surely wiped them out. But there was still a remnant. A remnant would be like the ten that they were looking for in Sodom and Gomorrah, but they didn't exist. There's always this remnant that is always seeking the Lord in the form of the prophets and other men who believed God. In the new, when the new covenant came, we know the remnant to be the apostles. Even Paul in Romans 11 says there still is a remnant to this day by grace, by the grace of God. There still is a remnant. And going forward, 
the messianic movement is the spiritual remnant of Israel. Now, we're not the actual physical ones that are going back to the land. There are some over there. But we are a smaller group, even though Israel would be as the sands of the sea. And so the prophets are speaking specifically to a spiritual part of Israel called the remnant. If you want to do a very interesting biblical study that has a thread that carries all the way through, you just do the study on what the remnant is. And the remnant has always been, the remnant was always big. It was a remnant who did not bow their knee to Baal with Elijah. There were only 7,000 in that day, even though the nation of Israel was much greater. And what the prophecies are saying is, is that at the end of this time, it's a remnant that will be returning. A remnant will return to the land. Not everybody. There will be some who are physical elements who are going to get caught up in other things. But the, the promises of the real return to the land are for the remnant. Now, let me go a little bit further with this. I made reference to the greater exodus. In other words, Israel, uh, the sons of Israel came out of Egypt like after the pattern of Abraham. We are going to be an exodus from the nations after the pattern of Jacob. So turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah 23, where he makes reference to this group. Jeremiah 23, beginning at verse 3. Then I myself shall gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and shall bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Very interesting expression. They will be fruitful and multiply. That's the meaning of Ephraim's name. Ephraim means fruitful and bountiful. And they will live out the meaning of the name. Ephraim will be returned. He's referring to I will bring Ephraim back. Verse 4. I shall also raise up shepherds over them. And they shall tend them, and they will not be afraid any longer. Just like Jacob, they won't be afraid any longer. Nor be terrified, nor will any be missing. They won't lose anyone. The, the All of the remnant will return, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. He will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. A reference to the Messiah, very clearly. And in his days, Judah will be saved. Now, there was a reference to Ephraim. Now, there's a reference to Judah. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel from the north land and from all the countries where I had driven them, then they will live on their own soil. This is a prophecy about the return to the land. And it's about a remnant that will return. And it's a, making reference to Ephraim and the house of Israel and reference to Judah and them all coming back. And Jeremiah in these days knew the difference between Israel and Judah. And he equates and pulls them all together here, uh, saying they will do it. Another prophet who speaks of this same issue, Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning at verse 15. Ezekiel 37, verse 15, he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, And for you, son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the sons of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel, his companions, then join them for yourself, one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when the sons of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not declare us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, 
and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be king over all of them. And they will no longer be two nations. They will no longer be divided into two kingdoms. For they will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. Clearly a reference the prophet is speaking to. He knows that Israel had been formed in the house of Israel, in the house of Judah, and he's speaking of a time when they'll be joined back together again. When were the two camps joined back together again for Jacob? When did he no longer refer to it as two camps, but he only referred to it as his one house or his one camp? When was that? After he got done with Esau. And when he went to the camping place, his very first camping place called Sukkot, he no longer referred to it as two camps any further. He just referred to it as his house. You know, of, and all of the sons were there together. And it also becomes very apparent later as he moves down, when he finally receives Benjamin, his twelfth son, then he has the full and complete picture. Well, and that was one of the, the last sons of Rachel, the brother of Joseph. So here we are. We're the messianic movement. We're in the last days. We see Israel uh, and its physical elements going on. And by the way, Israel and its physical elements is like under the pattern of Jacob's children when they first were presented to Esau. If you look at the study of the return of the physical descendants to Israel, there's stages. There's stages. There's when the nation was first formed and there were certain pioneers there. Then when Jerusalem was captured and there were additional pioneers there, there, there have been people coming back, making this procession, coming back the whole time. If you remember when the procession kind of was coming to the conclusion, what was the last thing that Jacob did? Bowed seven times. What has Israel just done recently? A seven-year peace agreement in which they've bowed to their enemies for seven years. Like unto Jacob, bowing seven times. We're coming to the conclusion you know, of the of the events surrounding the return. But the return is founded in both a spiritual return as well as a physical return. We are the element of the spiritual return. The messianic movement is the modern-day uh, spiritual element of the preparing for the return to the land. And we are witnesses of the events going on in, in the land as well. And for a lot of people in the messianic movement, one of the great joys uh, there is for non-Jews coming in the Messianic movement is suddenly they have an identity. For the first time, they've had this kind of a spiritual dilemma. Suddenly they say, hey, I belong. I, I, I'm, I'm part of Israel. I belong here. And they have this new name. They have this identity to give into it. It's exactly the messages of the, uh, the message to the seven churches given to the sons of Israel. There's also messages given in Revelation 2.9 and chapter 3, verse 9, to Jews, believing Jews. Here's what it says. And to those who say they are Jews and are not, which is a rebuke. You know, uh, in our Messianic um, uh, Jewish brethren, they assert their Jewishness, but they're not the praisers of God. They're the praisers of themselves. 
they're caught up in their own ego of their identity and excluding others. And, and in fact, the reference made in those verses is who say they are Jews, but are rather of the synagogue of Satan. They're in the assembly of the enemy, not in my assembly. Well, what is he saying? What is the assembly or the synagogue of Satan? Who is Satan? The accuser of the brethren. If you're sitting in the assembly as a Messianic Jew and you're accusing the other brethren, if you're accusing brethren of the house of Israel and challenging them, whom you can't even prove your birthright, but you're going to deny the birthright of those of Israel, it says you're sitting in the synagogue of Satan. All you're doing is the same thing that Satan does, which is accusing the brethren. And you're not being the true praisers of God. So it's a rebuke from the Messiah to Messianic Jews at the end of the age saying, you need to knock it off with this accusing of other brethren and get back with the real objective, which is to um, be praising God. And furthermore, he then makes a promise to them and he says, I'm going to make them bow down at your feet, Israel, to know that I've loved you. We know that the Messiah came and purposed his ministry toward the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The Jews were down in Jerusalem, and he didn't purpose his ministry. He worked with us, but he didn't purpose his ministry. He went and ministered first in the Galilee to the, to the nations, to the Gentile areas where they would be at. In fact, the only Judean of the apostles of the twelve was Judas Iscariot. All the rest were of the house of Israel. They were representatives from the house of Israel. It's only Paul who later on will be of the tribe of Benjamin of the house of Judah who will become one of the apostles. Um, and so we obviously see, even in the selection of the apostles, he chose men of the house of Israel. So we know that that's his purpose and that's his intent. And he quotes from Isaiah 49, where he specifically says that at the end of the age, when we're all being drawn back, that there will be certain ones who will have to bow down to Israel to recognize that God has loved them. And I believe that the statement being made here is to the Messianic Jews at the end of the age. You better become praisers of God, not accusers of other brethren, or else God is going to be forcing you to bow down and to show you whom he has loved, which is these brethren who are coming uh, to it. So let me make the following statement with regard to the Messianic movement, and this is where I believe the lessons that we learn from Jacob's return as it affects us specifically today. The Messianic movement is a move of God in these last days. It's not the exclusive design of Messianic Jews. It is the move of God's Spirit to bring back the remnant of Israel, the whole house of Israel. And that remnant includes and will not be complete, just as Jacob's return was, until Joseph returns as well. And Joseph was the last one to be introduced to Esau. He's the only one that's cited by name. Judah is not cited by name or any of the others. But Joseph is cited by, and it won't be complete until Joseph, the sons of Joseph, return also in the return. So, the last stop of Jacob uh, was to Sukkot. And by the way, that was the first stop for the Exodus when Israel left Egypt. The first place the camp was Sukkot. And according to Zechariah 14, when you and I after the end of the age is over with and the resurrection and the rapture has taken place and when we return to Jerusalem and we're with the Messiah, it says the first thing that we're going to do is observe the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. That will be our first stop as well. So you can see the tie-in as it, as it ties back again to the, the return to the land. Sukkot, therefore, is the focus of the second coming of the Yeshua 
And it shows us how to prepare for Jacob's trouble and return. It shows us how to prepare for the greater exodus. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.